Hello and welcome to episode 16 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to focus on two piano sonatas from Opus 27, composed between 1800 and 1801. But before we turn to those two sonatas, I want to say just a few words about Beethoven's Piano Sonata number 12 in A-flat major from Opus 26, composed a little earlier. It's really a very fine work, but doesn't quite fit with the other two we're going to focus on in some respects. Sometime in 1801 or 1802, Beethoven had announced to a friend, violinist Wenzel Krumholz, that he was dissatisfied with his works up to that point and wished to strike out in a new direction. Predictably, historians have long debated exactly what Beethoven meant by that statement. It is sometimes thought that Beethoven may have felt that he had too often deferred to convention and common practice in his works, that they had not sufficiently demonstrated the uniqueness of his musical personality. That does not mean that Beethoven intended to disdain all of the conventional or traditional elements of late 18th century musical style. That would, of course, been impossible. But there's no question that at this point, and at least in some compositions, Beethoven was increasingly eager to explore his own individuality, and had begun to do so, to some extent, even before his oft-quoted remark to Krumpholz. And that takes us back to the Sonata Number no. 12 in A-flat major. It is a very impressive work, and not devoid of singular touches. It begins with a theme in variations movement, rather than a sonata form movement, and although the theme is a noble and attractive one, the variations, though certainly imaginative, are to some degree conventional. The scherzo movement that follows is a remarkably insistent one, repeating some rhythmic patterns and some chord progressions relentlessly, something we'll also see in Sonata Number no. 13. The slow movement, which gives the sonata its nickname, is a funeral march, and that is naturally somewhat unusual. But it proceeds in a manner which, though certainly unpredictable in some ways, the modulations in the middle of the movement in particular, is to a large degree traditional in its approach. The last movement is a playful rondo, a perfect corrective to the funeral march. Piano Sonata Number no. 12 certainly encompasses a wide variety of moods, but it is actually rather more orthodox in many respects than the two sonatas of Opus 27 we'll focus on here. And we'll begin with Sonata Number no. 13 in E-flat major. The first movement is a somewhat puzzling one. It's in cut time, marked andante, and is sometimes described as a rondo. But it is certainly not a conventional rondo, as we'll see, and the rondo form is, at any rate, seldom made use of for the opening movement of a sonata. The first theme is not particularly rondo-like. It's actually rather passive. It begins pianissimo with repeated quarter-quarter half-note rhythms in the right hand, while the left enters with a 16th note run after B3 with a figure that Tuvi characterizes as running like a kitten in pursuit of its tail. Here's the first part, four measures which are immediately repeated. Thank you. 
As you could hear, the harmonies are very simple, basically alternating tonic and dominant seventh chords. The right hand doesn't really exhibit much noteworthy melodic motion, just moving between different notes of the chord, although measure four does introduce a little syncopation in the form of a short-long, short-long pattern, an eighth-quarter, eighth-quarter figure. The next four bars, which are also immediately repeated, are similar but a little more interesting in that the left-hand part becomes a bit more ambitious and incorporates the short-long syncopation I just mentioned into its pattern. It also adds an interesting little touch of sinuous chromaticism in its last two measures. The second part of this opening section, whether we refer to it as the refrain doesn't really matter much, is a little more active melodically, unfolding now mostly in quarter notes and eighth notes over a throbbing eighth note accompaniment, which again focuses on the tonic and dominant seventh chords. But it still doesn't cover much ground melodically, and is for the most part devoid of any distinctive elements except perhaps for the accented chromatic non-harmonic tone halfway through the second measure. Here are the first four measures of the second part, again repeated. We now encounter our first real surprise, and its surprise value comes mostly from the fact that everything so far has been so low-key and almost sedate. Every new idea we've encountered to this point has been presented pianissimo, at least initially, and this one is as well. In the next four measures, we hear three full-bodied C major chords followed by an ascending scale line that peaks on an A-flat. And by then, we've realized that the C major chords were there largely to tear us away from E-flat major, which has been drilled into our ears quite a few times in these opening measures, and push us with a rather dramatic crescendo in the direction of F minor, since the C major chords are in fact the dominant chord in the key of F minor. We're not really going to stay in the key of F minor, it's just a stopping point on the way back to E-flat major which, after a descending line in 16th notes in the right hand and an ascending line of 16th notes in the left hand, we return to in the fourth measure. These four measures are then repeated. Let's hear the last few bars of the first part of the opening section, still in E-flat major at that point, moving into this new idea, which begins as if it's in C major, but quickly shows its true colors.
at the end of my excerpt, you could hear the return of the very first part of the refrain, giving the whole section a rounded binary flavor. The second part is varied and embellished somewhat, and we half expect it to modulate at the last minute to a new key for the first episode. But it doesn't. It concludes firmly in E-flat major. But the first part of the first episode, which we're going to jump to, marked by a shift to 6-8 time, begins just as adamantly in C major, the key for which we just heard a sneak preview. And this time, it's not C major on its way to F minor on its way back to E-flat major. It's really C major, as announced and confirmed by a slew of tonic and dominant chords in the new key, although Beethoven does touch ever so briefly on other chords right before the first section of the episode closes. And it's highly contrasting, consisting largely of 16th note arpeggio bass swirls followed by descending arpeggios in eighth notes and undulating descending scale patterns. And it's much noisier, or at least every other measure is, as it continually fluctuates from forte to piano and back again. So it's in a new, somewhat unexpected key, and it's quite a bit more active rhythmically than what we're calling the refrain theme. Here's the first part of the episode, the first eight bars repeated as usual. Part 2 of this episode begins by rapidly arpeggiating up the dominant chord in C major and focuses there for four bars, soon adding the seventh. There is one very important and rather striking rhythmic addition, however, a sforzando dominant chord, low in the left-hand piano range, inserted on the offbeat, initially the last eighth note of the measure, but later on the third eighth note as well. After four bars of this, Beethoven inserts what is really a variant of the second four bars of the first part of the episode, but he then repeats the opening bars with their powerful offbeat accents. At this point, a new transition passage in C minor, starting softly and crescendoing up to forte, serves to transport us to a dominant seventh on B flat in preparation for the return of the refrain in the original key of E flat major. Here is the second part of the first episode and the transition taking us back to E flat major. Safely back in E-flat major and tempo 1, we hear a new version of what we've been calling the refrain theme. The first four bars are identical to those in the original refrain theme, but those four bars aren't repeated this time. Instead, the four bars that follow invert the two parts, the kitten pursuing its tail 16th note run, now on top in the right hand, and the chords in the left. The second part of the first section then appears as in its original version but instead of being repeated, it too is then presented with the parts inverted. This sort of thing doesn't happen automatically, of course. You can't always just switch the parts and expect things to work out harmonically, but the trick does work here very effectively. 
Nevertheless, I'm not going to play this section, but rather move on to the next episode. There is a bit of a transition, and for a few measures it looks as if we might be modulating to a new key, but it doesn't. And soon we're back in E-flat major and sitting on a fermata on the tonic chord. What comes next in C minor in marked Allegro Molto e Vivace might at first seem like another contrasting episode in our theoretical rondo form. As usual, there's no break between one movement or section and the next, one of the things that gives this work a fantasy-like quality. But this episode, if it is an episode, not only represents a major shift in momentum, but it's pretty long and it's self-divided into multiple sections. And the more we hear of it, the more we are inclined to think that this isn't really an episode at all. It's really a separate entity altogether. And most recordings list it that way. So that leaves the first movement as really in just a loose three-part ABA prime form. But enough about the opening movement. What is the second movement up to? It's in 3-4 time, and the tempo is very quick, allegro molto e vivace, and the movement is rather scherzo-like in some ways. It relies very heavily, in the first part of the movement, on arpeggios, ascending and descending, sometimes together in octaves in the right and left hands, but sometimes in contrary motion. It begins harmonically by affirming the new key of C minor with tonic and dominant chords, but it actually begins to suggest movement away from C minor very quickly. Here's the first part of the first section, 16 bars long and repeated. You might have noticed that we seem to be moving away from C minor as early as measure 6, where Beethoven introduces a descending chromatic line in both hands. It's not very clear where that line will take us, and in the end the answer is not very far, because in fact we never really leave C minor. The second part of the first section is also all about arpeggios, but the situation is a little different this time because the arpeggios are sometimes based on incomplete seventh chords rather than simple triads, and those seventh chords add a little more dissonance into the mix. But that descending chromatic line still controls the chord progression just as it did before, and in the end, weak cadence on C minor. Here's the second part of the first section repeated. The middle section in A-flat major is rather different. The arpeggiated chords are gone, replaced now by some clever rhythmic effects created by the fact that the right hand is sometimes in alignment with the left hand and sometimes in opposition. Here is the first part of the middle section, 14 bars long, repeated.
after having an A-flat major chord drilled into our ears for eight bars, with minimal melodic activity to enrich it, Beethoven disrupts things a little by throwing in a fortissimo trill, a diminished chord, and a little melodic syncopation at the end of the section. It doesn't really change much, but we do end the section on a dominant chord rather than a tonic. Then we encounter part two of the middle section. Instead of sitting on an A-flat chord for eight measures, we hear a dominant seventh chord, quietly, for 16 bars on beats one and three, resolving to tonic only at the last second. Melodically, the right hand is a little more interesting here, with descending pairs of quarter notes moving up and down the scale on the second and third beats of the measure, while the left hand continues its chords on beat one and three. The first section of the movement, characterized by a constant flow of arpeggios in both hands, some ascending, some descending, then returns, repeating the first 16 bars note for note. But there is no repeat of those 16 bars. Instead, the right-hand part is now offset with the left, pushed half a beat later, and the arpeggio patterns are now staggered. Meanwhile, the left hand is now sempre staccato, which, in itself, gives the passage a whole new personality. This offbeat interaction between the parts continues into the next part, which is extended and eventually comes to a conclusion on a C major chord. The slow movement that follows immediately, again no pause between movements, is in 3-4 time, marked Adagio con Espressione, and provides another wonderful example of a noble and slightly sentimental Beethoven theme in A-flat major. It's not a long movement, its main thematic material unfolding in two eight-measure phrases, the first beginning naturally on tonic and closing on the dominant, and the second which links back to the previous movement in its use of an offset right-hand melody in the final four measures, reverses the process. It seems initially as if we will then hear an embellished repeat of the first two sections, but that repeat is interrupted after eight bars with a florid, cadenza-like passage ending on a dominant seventh in the key of E-flat. Here are the first eight bars.
As you heard, the mood tilts a bit from noble toward sentimental, as it continues, because of the increasingly pervasive chromaticism. The second 16 bars, with their introduction of a constant flow of offbeat eighth notes in the right-hand melody, mostly in octaves, is perhaps less interesting in terms of contour, but even more pervasive in its use of chromaticism, making use of four descending chromatic half-steps in a row at two points. Tavi and others have suggested that this particular sonata gets stronger and more interesting as you proceed through it, a notion probably related to the fact that not many historians or interpreters are particularly excited by the first movement, but think the second clever enough and the third positively likable. How about the fourth movement? Do we continue this momentum to the end? It quickly becomes apparent that this non-stop, highly energetic movement in E-flat major, 2-4 time, and marked Allegro Vivace, is more of a joke than the pseudo-scherzo second movement. This movement is somewhat like a sonata rondo in form, but the thematic material is not particularly distinctive. With both hands low in the bass clef, the first melodic idea starts in the right hand with a leap up to the tonic note followed by a descending figure featuring quarters and eighth notes against sixteenth notes in the left. The third measure introduces an interesting sonority, both hands scooting up a scale passage in thirds and sixths, which eventually settles on the dominant chord. The next four bars duplicate the first four up an octave. The next four bars, starting on the dominant, introduce a new, very simple idea based on ascending staccato arpeggios with sforzando accents on the second beat of the measure, followed by a descending staccato line. The next four bars repeat that idea, but modify to conclude on the tonic. Those eight bars are then repeated, and Beethoven introduces his third thematic idea. It's based on a new sonority, block chords beneath a descending four-note motive, alternating loud and soft. It starts in E-flat major, but as the motive repeats, heads first toward C minor and then B-flat major. The four-note motive is broken into shorter two-note motives, with dynamic contrasts coming even faster as we head, temporarily, toward F major. 
Since it begins the process of breaking away from the original Tanaki, this could be considered the first part of a transition to the first episode in a rondo form. I let the last excerpt run a bit longer to introduce a little of the next idea, which is not so much a theme per se as a repeated figuration pattern over a repeated note in the left hand, and which continues the modulatory process, concluding ultimately in the key of the dominant, B-flat major. Having arrived there, we hear an episode in the form of another ascending triadic arpeggio idea in the right hand somewhat related to the earlier one, but more expansive in nature. This continues until the return of the first idea we encountered, the refrain theme back in E-flat major. Eventually, elements of the refrain theme and some new ideas we encounter along the way are developed, and we drop in at other key areas, notably D-flat major, more or less in the manner of a development section, but I'm not going to attempt to document the details here. Here's an excerpt beginning with the return of the original refrain, transition, and first episode, now in a new key, which again goes on at what seems like rather extensive length given its repetitive nature before we finally come to a stop on a fermata on the dominant seventh. At this point, a newly embellished version of the theme for the slow movement is introduced. This is a surprising maneuver, of course, bringing back a theme from a previous movement, although in a fantasy such as this, with no real breaks between the movements, the effect is probably a bit less convincing as an ironic gesture than when similar thematic returns occur in some of Beethoven's later and more famous works. After a cadenza-like flourish, we shift to 2-4 time, and a final coda marked presto, 
one that refers back to, among other things, the first part of the refrain theme, before flying after 20 short measures to a fortissimo conclusion on E-flat major. What are we to think of this movement? Noted 19th century pianist, conductor, and pedagogue Hans von Bülow apparently thought the first movement unworthy of Beethoven, and Tovey described it as a sort of fooling, saying, tastes may differ whether the fooling is excellent or not. But on the other hand, the slow movement for this sonata is universally admired, and the scherzo movement abounds with clever rhythmic novelties. And if the sense of logical continuity is strained in some movements, we have to remember that with this work, one of two from Opus 27 to be designated as fantasy-like, it's possible that some or even large portions of these movements may have been derived from one of Beethoven's famous improvisations. It's true that there's no consistent display of either thunderous virtuosity or stormy drama of the sort that witnesses to some of these improvisatory displays by Beethoven have recounted. But the typical Beethoven improvisation may well have encompassed a wide array of moods, certainly not all of them designed to display technique or dramatic intensity. And as far as the sudden shifts in mood found in some movements from this sonata are concerned, Beethoven was noted for his tendency to begin a passage of tender sentimentality only to shove it aside rudely in favor of a more high-spirited, even raucous passage. But while this sonata may not have proven to be to everyone's taste, the opposite seems to be the case with its brother sonata, Opus 27, number 2, nicknamed, although not by Beethoven himself, the Moonlight Sonata. So much has been written about this piece, and especially about the first movement, that I'm going to restrict myself to just a few points about it. Many commentators have focused on the mesmerizing effect of the repeated eighth note triplets, especially as played against octaves in the lower range of the left hand. In this, some have heard the music as deeply contemplative, while others have focused more on the lamenting quality, some of whom even associate it with some aspects of a funeral march, especially the dotted rhythms and repeated notes. The movement is marked sempre pianissimo, and even through some of the unusually rich and sometimes even surprising chord progressions which anchor those repeated right-hand triplets, Beethoven is very sparing in his use of dynamic markings, allowing himself only quick crescendos and decrescendos later in the movement. We begin, of course, with only the right-hand triplets arpeggiating a tonic C-sharp minor chord over the root of the chord played in octaves in the left hand. The right-hand pattern repeats in the second bar with the left hand moving down by step to the seventh of the chord and making it clear that, however repetitive the right-hand triplets may become, this movement is by no means going to be stagnant or austere. Even before the melody is introduced on the last beat of bar 5, the opening chord progression employs, among others, a colorful Neapolitan sixth chord, one of Beethoven's favorite chromatic chords, to lead into the dominant chord, which in turn takes us back to the tonic in measure 5.
When the melody does enter on G-sharp, the fifth of the scale, its opening rhythmic gesture, a dotted eighth sixteenth note pattern heard as an upbeat to a dotted half note, it repeats that G-sharp five more times before finally moving a step higher. Of course, Beethoven is quite well known for his repeated note melodies, some of which hold tenaciously to their single note much longer than this one does. Here's the first melodic phrase, measures 5 through 9. As you probably noticed, the phrase ends with a solid cadence on E major, the relative major of C-sharp minor. That's the typical starting point in a minor key sonata form movement for the second subject, and in fact this first movement is sometimes characterized as a modified sonata form movement. But that would suggest that the entire first subject is only four bars long, presumably after a five-bar introduction before the melody comes in. Furthermore, this theoretical four-bar first subject also includes within it the actual modulation to the new key. So in four bars, we would have not only the entire first subject, but also the modulatory transition to the new key, a somewhat unlikely prospect. Here's an excerpt beginning with the introduction of the melody, which you just heard, cadencing again on E major, but this time continuing on to the next section. First of all, we didn't stay in E major very long. Beethoven simply flips the switch and we're back in a minor key, this time E minor, briefly, really only for a single measure. Within seconds, it seems as if we're headed for C major, and no sooner than we arrive there, but the bass line moves down by step and we're forced in the direction of B minor, where we stabilize for a little while. But it's only for a little while because soon B minor is transformed into B major, and that, it seems, intends to direct us back to E minor. So things are fluid harmonically, but melodically we've come to something of a climax. Beethoven introduces some new ascending half-step motion in the melody that creates some sharp, sustained dissonances against the chords below with the bass line moving rather ominously in slow-moving chordal arpeggio patterns below it.
I concluded my excerpt at a point where we have arrived at F-sharp minor. Here the theme starts up again, a variant this time, although once again beginning with the repeated dotted note figure and unfolding slowly and generally by step. Soon we find ourselves in C-sharp minor, the original tonic key, and we experience a prolonged dominant pedal in that key. The left-hand bass note on G-sharp is repeated for 12 whole measures, and the triplet arpeggio figures above it weave in and out of dissonance. As before, there are brief surges in dynamics, but on the whole the effect is remarkably understated, even when the undulating triplets in the right hand are at their most dissonant. Here's the section beginning in F-sharp minor and extending into the long sustained pedal passage. As you heard in the last few seconds of my excerpt, the prolonged tension from the pedal on G-sharp is finally relieved when we arrive at a root position tonic chord in C-sharp minor, and the original theme is reintroduced at the original pitch level, recapitulated note for note for the first four bars, and we end up again, apparently, in E major. But from that point on, things proceed a little differently than in the opening bars of the movement. We don't immediately switch modes to E minor, which in the opening section opened the door to brief tonicizations of new tonal areas. In fact, this time we find ourselves back in C-sharp minor after a couple of bars, with a new expressive variant of the melody as always featuring the repeated dotted rhythms and moving by stepwise motion. We again experience some sharp dissonances in the right hand, while the left hand swells up again ominously beneath it with slower moving arpeggio figures, and other tonal areas appear briefly before our ears. But in the end, we close firmly on C-sharp minor, and the movement ends with a brief coda of nine measures in which the repeated dotted rhythms of the theme are repeated several times before the familiar triplet pattern undulates its way to the final two cadential chords. It's certainly a memorable movement, and without question deserves its lasting fame. 
but you wouldn't normally expect a movement so completely dominated by the opening theme and devoid of any real meaningful thematic contrast to be so enormously successful. But the combination of solemnity, lushness of sonority, harmonic richness, including touches of dissonant tension, and a flow of repetitive triplet figures, which turn out to be very mesmerizing, has added up to a very remarkable movement. The next movement is less remarkable. But while this little scherzo in 3-4 time in marked allegretto may be less remarkable, it's still a charming little movement, offering a splendid contrast with the first. It's in D-flat major, really the major key equivalent of C-sharp minor in the first movement. You heard both sections of the first part in my excerpt. The melody, harmonized largely with block chords, has a wonderful lilt to it, due in large part to the use of rests and staccato markings. The first four-bar phrase of the first section ends on the dominant, and the second up a fourth ends back on tonic. The last eight bars of the first section follow a somewhat similar contour and also feature a prominent ascending leap of a fourth, although this time on a weak beat. But the most interesting thing about the last eight bars is, of course, the syncopations resulting from the repeated ties across the bar lines. The second section, a bit longer and meant to be repeated, although my excerpt didn't include that, opens with a new idea. Like the first section, it begins on the tonic note of D-flat, but this time works its way down by half-steps, allowing for some more interesting chromatic chords along the way, including briefly a minor dominant chord. In typical scherzo fashion, the second part of the second section, largely, although not literally, duplicates the first section, with the entire section coming the rest on the tonic chord of D-flat. The first section of the trio synthesizes some aspects of the first part, most notably the across-the-bar ties, but adds a number of weak beat sforzando accents to provide a little more punch. The second section of the trio is quieter for the most part, although it includes a couple of rather unexpected accents along the way. Its most notable attributes are the almost constant across-the-bar ties and the strong chromatically descending bass line. And of course, we then head back to repeat the first part of the scherzo. 
I've suggested that the middle movement is unremarkable but charming. The final movement in C-sharp minor again, common time and marked presto agitato, has a claim to be almost as remarkable as the first, albeit in a very different way. It's in sonata form and features as propulsive a first subject as any Beethoven ever composed, a series of ascending arpeggios in 16th notes, starting softly in the low range of the piano, but sweeping dramatically upward for three octaves, climaxing with a pair of thunderous staccato eighth note accents. This very basic but very powerful motive dominates for the first eight measures. For the next six bars, a new melodic idea, based on ascending and descending scale fragments, is introduced in the middle of the texture, taking us to the end of the first subject and a fermata on the dominant, G-sharp major. After the fermata, we encounter what at first seems like a repetition of the first subject, but soon the original key is undermined, and we realize that we're actually in a modulatory transition which will deliver us to G-sharp minor, the minor dominant in the original key, somewhat less typical than the relative major for the second subject, but one we've seen before. After six measures, the second subject arrives a strongly contrasting, more lyrical theme which repeats a similar motive as the chords change beneath it. In the fifth bar of the second subject, a syncopated variant of the first idea takes over, and soon we find ourselves modulating to A major. Here we encounter a connecting episode in which the stripped-down texture features swirling scale lines and a gradual crescendo up to forte. Here's an excerpt covering the modulatory transition that begins as if it's going to be a restatement of the first subject, the more lyrical second subject in two related parts, and the modulation to A major and the brief episode in that key. This little bit of major key activity, included to balance the minor key ideas that have so far dominated, is short-lived. As you heard in my excerpt, we're yanked unceremoniously back to G-sharp minor for a rather repetitive closing section theme, consisting of a migrating stepwise melodic line harmonized in eighth-note block chords that recalls the last part of the first subject. After another brief transitional passage, we encounter a very short little codetta, 
marked by an initial daughter eighth sixteenth note rhythm and staccato block chords over a pumping sixteenth note broken chord accompaniment that takes us to the end of the exposition. The development section predictably begins by exploiting the dynamic arpeggios of the first subject, but moves on fairly quickly to the second subject, which it develops at greater length, touching on various keys in the process. The development section is not a particularly long one and finishes with a long repeated dominant pedal before finally yielding to the original tonic of C-sharp minor and the recapitulation. From there, everything proceeds more or less normally, the second subject returning this time in the tonic key rather than G-sharp minor. The transition previously starting in A major, this time starts in D major, but ends up delivering us back to C-sharp minor as expected, where the closing section is heard. The brief codetta proceeds apace, but then we are reminded that this sonata also is described as fantasy-like as we head into the unusually free and almost improvisatory sounding coda. It begins, not surprisingly, with a headlong return of the dynamic first subject, but this is interrupted after just four measures with a series of tonally ambiguous 32nd note arpeggios alternating from hand to hand and blurred together by the pedal. After ending on a fermata based on a perplexing dominant seventh on F-sharp, another similar series of arpeggios follows, ending on a seven-diminished seventh of C-sharp minor, which conveniently enough takes us to C-sharp minor and another look at the second subject. But it dissipates fairly quickly after delivering us to the key of F-sharp minor. More arpeggios follow and a free cadenza-like passage takes us to a brief tempo change to adagio. Two bars later, we're back to tempo one, and a quick, rather quiet glance at the second subject is followed by yet another and rather noisier glimpse of the first subject, or at least its opening gesture, as we cascade to the final chords, bringing the movement to a close. Here's our final excerpt. Starting near the beginning of the coda with its return of the first subject, although not in the original key, leading into the sometimes ambiguous arpeggios I referred to, the two fermatas, and the return of the second subject, the theme this time starting in the left hand, the new arpeggios, the cadenza-like flourish and change in tempo, and the final glance at both subjects before the drive to the final cadence.
It's an interesting movement, to be sure, with a very dynamic first subject and some rather unexpected maneuvers in the coda. By the way, Kenneth Drake, in his excellent book, The Beethoven Sonatas and the Creative Experience, makes a number of excellent points regarding similarities and commonalities between the first movement of the sonata and the last. I'm not going to try to duplicate them here, but they are well worth consulting in their original context. That's all for today. In the next episode, we're going to look at two very different works composed in 1801, the string quintet in C major, opus 29, and the so-called Pastoral Sonata, number 15, opus 28.